0: Assalamu alaikum. Hi guys, welcome to the final episode of season 2 of the Aida Azlin show and I'm so excited for my guest this week, mashallah. It's very surreal because she's my teacher and I always see her on my online classes. Mashallah, today I have the blessed opportunity to talk to her and ask her whatever I want, <laughs> inshallah.
1: Almost. say <laughs> <laughs> Tamara, do you want to say Hi. Yes, I want to say hi. Assalamu alaikum to you and assalamu alaikum to all of your listeners and viewers. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No, thank you for accepting the invitation.
0: Okay, Ansi Tamara, can you share a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yes, absolutely. So my name is Tamara, and it rhymes with camera. Oh, huh <laughs> Tamara. Tamara. Mhm. Tamara Grey. And you often see in front of my name the word "ansay." and many people think that's my name, it's not my name. It's a very colloquial Syrian expression that means teacher. Mm -hmm. And when I first came back to the United States, I had lived in Damascus for 20 years, and and, it was a beautiful time. And while I was there, I was studying Islamic studies in the classical traditional fashion. When I was there, I was teaching uh, students already, and people called me Anse. And so in 2012, when I came to the United States, the students that I had that were here asked me, what should we call you? Should we call you Ostaza? Should we call you Sheikha? And I was feeling very extremely nostalgic for Damascus. Aww. And not only was I feeling nostalgic, I was also feeling that the words Ustaza and Sheikha didn't have a lot of meaning in the West mm-hmm. for people. So it was okay to have a different name. Mm-hmm. So I said, no, just call me Anse. And of course, now <laughs> some people are very confused by that word. And now I kind of accept almost anything. And since I finished my doctorate, people call me doctor. And sometimes they just say, hey, you, and that's okay, too. So, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I came back to the United States in 2012. I'm originally from Minnesota. I lived for 20 years in Damascus, Syria, walking on a path of ilm and tarbiyah. It was Inshallah. a beautiful time. I'm very, very grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that time. Of course, I deeply wish that it had been longer and I was still there. But I also am grateful for for the opportunity to take what Allah gave me in Syria, what Syria gave me. Syria is such a blessed, beautiful place. What Syria gave me in all of those 20 years and share it with others. So I'm grateful for that. I have three children. I have two grandchildren. I was gonna say I have a granddaughter, but I have a brand new grandson as well. Inshallah. Uh, Alhamdulillah. And I just finished my doctorate last spring in leadership at the University of St. Thomas or from the University of St. Thomas. I run an organization called Mm Robota, and that's where you take classes through Ribat, the academic program there. Yes. And we also have a publishing company, and we are giving rise to women's voices. My vision is to create a world with a rising tide of women scholars, women community care agents. I love that. Yeah, and women upbringers of our communities, our families, our societies, And I really believe that once Muslim women take on this role, really the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen of these days, Mm -hmm. uh, we will find great changes in our cultures and in our societies that are going to be really positive, positive changes that are going to uplift our communities. And I'm hoping to leave a legacy that young women, young Muslim girls, and really Muslim girls and boys, men and women around the world, will be able to hold on to as we get Closer and closer to the end of times, in more and more difficult times, mm. they'll be able to hold on to the message of the Prophet, salam, the life of Rasulullah As- and his companions, which was a joyful, beautiful, wonderful. Life And we have lots more projects at Rabata. Anyone can go to Rabata.org to check them out. There's so many. (laughs) MashaAllah. You did it so beautifully, so I'm happy that I got you to
0: introduce yourself. Already, like, my mind has, like, a gazillion questions to ask. MashaAllah. But I want to start from... Way back in the beginning. So you said like how when you came back to the U.S., you felt very nostalgic, right? Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that I'm going to bring to you more nostalgia.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So how did you end up in Syria? (laughs) Well, I'm going to give you the kind of, it can't be a very short answer because it's a long story, but I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. I was Mm -hmm. 17 years old and I went to university. I was a year ahead in school. I went as a practicing Christian that had developed doubts. I was doubting the concept of Jesus as God, and I didn't want to worship a man. Mm -hmm. You know, I I didn't like this idea that God was a man. Mm -hmm. Through studying more about Christianity, because I thought, you know, that would help me, I decided I can't be a Christian anymore, and then I went on a path of learning about religion. Eventually, I met some Muslims— and then I became a Muslim. Now, that story is really short, and there are you know, other details there. But You need to write a biography, Allah. Yeah, inshallah, maybe, one day, inshallah. <laughs> inshallah. But the question of how I got to Syria, it starts there. So I'm a Muslim now. It's 1985 in Minnesota, right? And you are 18, 19. I was 18 years old, 1985. I was a new Muslim, very little community. And the first community of women that I met were Malaysian. And they, yes, and I have to say that was a gift from Allah. It was a real gift because they taught me worship. So when I moved in with these Malaysian women, there were nine of them and me. There was just so many cultural clashes. I was so American. <laughs> and they were very, very Malaysian. But um, the funniest part is that this is all pre-Google. So I became a Muslim before Google, before Internet. Mm-hmm. And it's Isha. We're praying Salat al-Isha, okay? The nighttime prayer. And it's the first time I, we all pray together. And one of the young women, she was the imam. And after we prayed this prayer, she turned to me. And I had already taken off my prayer clothes. And she said, aren't you going to pray Witr?" Well, I had no idea what Witr was. I was a brand new Muslim. I, n- I was struggling with five prayers. Now you're going to add another one? <laughs> but she answered herself. She didn't let me answer, right? I paused. Like she said, aren't you going to pray Witr?" And I kind of froze. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what that was. She said, oh, you pray Witr after tahajjud. MashaAllah <laughs> <laughs> oh, mashallah,
0: husnuzan. She husnuzan. thought well of you.
1: <laughs> Yes. And I was like, "What is Tahajjud? What is what's it, what is she talking about?" But I didn't say anything. I just said, "Yep, that's what I do." <laughs> and so she said, "Shall I wake you up?" And I said, "Yep. Sure. Do it." And so she did, like, she started waking me up for tahajjud, and I, I don't know if I, I looked up in a book or called somebody or something and said, what's tahajjud? What is this that I got myself into? But yeah, mashallah. So I started praying tahajjud with them very, very early. God bless mashallah. them. Because, yeah, it was a great habit to start. And that spiritual nutrition early on was a great help, really. It was a great help to the challenges and trials of being a convert in your own community, they truly were wonderful. How did you find them? Well, it was the 80s. And the Malaysian government, God bless them, had sent Malaysians all over the world in the 1980s to study. And so it, at my university, we had oh maybe 20 Malaysians, men and women. Mm-hmm. And I was at a smaller university. I mean, at the bigger University of Minnesota, there were even more. Malaysians were at every university in the 80s, mashallah. Really, really active. And yeah, and then they all went back and built the country. MashaAllah. So I became Muslim. It was January. I met the Malaysians in January, moved in with them sometime around February or March. Now, during those months, even though I was definitely blessed with the presence of these friends, I was struggling because the Muslim community wasn't very well-developed. In the mm-hmm. 80s. Mm-hmm. And I was disenchanted mm-hmm. with what I saw in community. And I remember standing on a corner of Grand Avenue and Snelling, anyone in Minneapolis will know that corner, and just doing like a quiet dua to myself, a prayer to God saying, I need help. I can't go on like this for very long. I need help. Mm-hmm. And subhanAllah, very soon after that, I was introduced to a Syrian woman who lived in California. She was a godsend absolutely godsend. I called her up on the phone and I used to, this was in the days also before cell phones for your audience to imagine, like I had to use a pay phone and put quarters in to call her to California <laughs> and ask her all of my questions of which she had decent answers. Like unlike the community that I found myself in, she really was able to respond to my concerns, my flounderings and my issues. I really was so appreciative of her and I eventually went to visit her and she was Syrian. Now, what happens here is that I also, during this time, everyone wanted to marry me. <laughs> Masha'Allah. Yeah, because I had a passport. I was cute. Oh. I wore a hijab. I was an Muslim. We awesome. need photo proofs, I'm saying. You need photo proof that I was cute? Okay, I'll have to look something <laughs> up. But I mean, I was cute enough, let's say. So I kind of realized I had a choice of any nationality. And I started thinking, what nationality do I want to marry? Do I want to marry a Malay guy? Good food in Malaysia, but I <laughs> <laughs> do I want to marry someone an Arab? Do I want? So I started thinking like that. And after I met her and I learned that there were women teachers in Damascus, I was like, I, I need to marry a Syrian. And so that's actually what I did. I sought out marrying a Syrian so that I could eventually go to Syria. I don't know why I didn't think I can just get on a plane and go on my own. That never crossed my (laughs) mind. It's okay. You were 18. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it was I was from Minnesota, so we didn't travel a lot. My family didn't travel internationally back then at all. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It never occurred to me that I could just get on a plane and go on my own. So I, I got married and alhamdulillah, we stayed in the United States for six years or something and then finally we did move to damascus where i lived for 20 years until the war i would have stayed there forever Michelle. but allah had a different plan and i i came back so that's how i got to syria that's the short version so would you say
0: that if anyone wants to study in syria find yourself a syrian husband <laughs>
1: no i would not say that not at all as a matter of fact no i know no not the best way to go about that no it's not safe right yeah i would tell them
0: Join Rebut. Yes, exactly. <laughs> wow. So six years in the U.S. And then together you guys moved to Syria to study or was it you moved to set up a new life or what was the intention?
1: My intention was to go there and learn my religion. My husband had family there. So he actually wasn't too excited about moving back to Syria. Mm-hmm. It was really me who was pushing, 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 pushing. And so for him, his parents were there. We had two daughters at the time. So also oh, we. we were thinking they can learn Arabic. You know, it would be good for them to learn Arabic if we go. And I think really for my husband, it was a trial basis. And uh, for me, it was, I just wanted to get there to start taking serious classes. So it was kind of a combined intention, I suppose. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were going to move there permanently. But also for me, I wanted to learn my religion.
0: Would you then say that you've always been a seeker of knowledge? Like you were like one year ahead already in uni. So like you probably already know that, hey, I'm a pretty great student, right?
1: Yes, I was always a a brainy kind of studenty kind of person. (laughs) I enjoy studying very much. If university in the United States was free, I would just go all the time. I would never quit. i just go get another degree. It's just fun. It's like candy <gasps> for the brain. I would much rather go and take classes than watch a movie or go out to dinner. Like, bring me to a class. Give me someone teaching me something. Give me an Charlie. assignment. I like the assignments and the tests, too, and the papers. I like all wow. of it. So when you go to Syria, did you learn Arabic before you go? or When I became a Muslim, the very beginning, it became clear to me immediately that I needed to learn Arabic if I was going to have access to the sacred book of Islam, the Quran. So I went to ISNA, which is an Islamic Society of North America convention or conference here in the United States. And that was really wonderful. It was the first time I was ever in a situation where I was in a place where the majority of people there were Muslim. It was, mm. it was a really new experience for me. Anyway, there I bought cassette tapes and a little oh, wow. book. hmm that taught me how to read the Arabic language. And that is literally how I learned. I put those cassette tapes on, opened that book and learned how to phonetically decode. It wasn't really reading with understanding, of course. It was Mm -hmm. just phonetically decoding Arabic. After I got married, I had a child, my first child. I had graduated from university and I took a summer Arabic course at the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I did that one course. Then we moved to Philadelphia And while I was doing my master's, a couple of times I registered to audit an Arabic class at the University of Pennsylvania. I was never able to complete those classes. They added to my language knowledge for sure. But I had a child and I was pregnant and I was in school and I had a husband. It was just too much. I I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, Mm. I I didn't, I never lasted. And maybe because I was auditing, I don't know. So when I moved to Syria in 1992 or 93, my Arabic was. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> I could parse out words. I had a limited vocabulary. I had memorized some surahs in the Quran, of course, like all new Muslims do. I could say a few phrases, but I didn't speak Arabic, you know? I had mm-hmm. some understanding of the structure of the Arabic language, a limited understanding. There, I learned Arabic by studying in Arabic. So, very much the way Foreigners come to the United States, and they learn English by going to the university. That's wow. really how I learned Arabic. Part of it was, I used to make so much dua about Arabic, you know, that I would learn it. In fact, one of the classes that I was taking, our teacher was telling, it was a seerah class, the life of the Prophet Wasallam. صلى and our teacher was t- reminding us, so before you study the life of Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, صلى we صلى used صلى to go back, really far back, and we were talking about Isa السلام, Jesus and we were talking about the time when the disciples of Jesus were called upon to go to other townships and teach them about Jesus's teachings. In the Bible, this is a story that is mentioned in Acts. Where we were reading it, it was different Mm -hmm. The way we were studying it was that they refused to go, that they were told to go and teach, go forth and teach, and they didn't want to leave Jesus. They didn't want to leave him. So they didn't go, and they woke up the next morning, and they could no longer speak their language, but instead, they were speaking the language of where they were supposed to go. So, So I heard that story. Now, as a Christian, I knew something about this, but we used to call it speaking in tongues. We called it something else. So I knew the story. You know what I mean? But I had never heard it like that before. That day, it dawned on me. I was like, oh, you silly woman. How did you not think of this before? I said to myself, (laughs) the one who teaches language is Allah. La ilaha illahu. And so from that day, I started making dua. And I I share it with your listeners because it's a dua that everyone should make. It really works well. Ya Allah, teach me Arabic. Like you taught the disciples of Jesus, the languages of the places they were supposed to go. But then I added a caveat. But don't let me forget English. I didn't want to forget English. And that may make you laugh. But at that point in the 80s, I had met a number of converts who really had forgotten English. I mean, their their English wasn't good anymore. They spoke in kind of a a weird, broken English as though they were always speaking to foreigners who couldn't understand them. And Mm. I didn't want that to happen to me. I wanted to keep my... The sort of level of English language that I had accomplished by then, if you will. So yeah, so a lot of du'a really uh, helped me, and also talking to anyone who would be w- who is willing to talk to me.
0: <laughs> Subhanallah. The reason why I ask you this, Anse, is because I live in Morocco. Oh. And I speak no Arabic. <sighs> So I've been going about it like you know like how you say oh you silly woman not I'm saying to it myself silly you silly woman <laughs> you're, you're asking everyone to teach you Arabic but you did not ask the owner of all languages which is Allah Subhanahu yeah. wa ta'ala and it's true like you should make du'a for big and small things and especially if you want to learn something that you really want to learn subhanallah yes And the reason I asked you that as well is because when I moved to Morocco, the one thing that I really missed the most about Singapore is I couldn't find classes because in Singapore, I was always busy. I was always going to classes. But in Morocco, all the classes are in Arabic. Right.
1: And yeah, no, I have no excuse. I just have to go. Yeah. And if you go to a class in Arabic, you're going to miss a lot of it the first time. But that's okay. Go for the Arabic. Go for the Mm. Arabic and then you can keep taking them in English, ribat. but then go to learn the Arabic as well. So you can get the subject at ribat and the Arabic there. That's so true. You have a background in Arabic though, don't you? You have some sort of background.
0: I know how to read, but not with understanding.
1: Yeah. So I had a little bit more than that, but I mean, anything you do is going to help you.
0: Exactly. Okay. So you went to Syria started studying all these like classes so the one thing that really struck me the most was that when you were doing all of that you were juggling your your family you moved to a whole new world basically you just did hijra
1: how did you stay sane that's a high compliment <laughs> yeah no i was enjoying myself you know i i loved it i loved it i loved syria i love new it was exciting it was fun I really love traveling. I love new things, but I really wanted to be in Syria, and I loved it very much. Mm. I think staying sane was easy. It wasn't— Because you loved it. And I wanted to be there, and I had a goal. I had a goal. I mean, I was there to learn. Of course, raising my family was part of life. That's wherever I was, I was going to do that. Yeah, it was It was a wonderful place to be, and I personally thought it was a wonderful place to raise children, too. Michelle. Okay, so
0: before we move on to the next part of your life, which was when you moved back to the U.S. in 2012, I wanted to ask you, like, was there during your whole 20 years of staying in Syria? Could you share with us maybe one or two stories that has stuck with you?
1: So many stories. Uh, I'll just tell the ones that come to mind first. When my son was around seven years old, my very good friend started to visit the Umayyad Mosque at Fajr. And because she started to do that, I started going with her. And the Omayyad Mosque is an incredible resource of Damascus that I hadn't really accessed much before then. And so what happened is we started going almost every day. She went every day. I didn't make it every day, but almost every day with our sons. She had a son, too. And we would go for Fajr. We would pray Fajr there. And the mosque is so big. I, I don't know how to describe it to you. It's enormous. And so we would pray fajr, and there were people there. It was just so beautiful. And then after fajr, there were teachers, shiuch, that would sit in different places of the masjid and would give classes. And our sons would go to this one sheikh who had been coming there to give classes, and he would do a little dhikr session. He'd been coming there to do that for 53 years Every single day when we were there with our sons. And our sons were blessed by the presence of that sheikh. And I, I'm i sorry, I don't even remember his name right now, which is terrible. But it was a beautiful experience for them. And so this was a daily beautiful experience. And my friend is, if you can say so, even more of an extrovert than me, which is hard to find. But <laughs> she is, I think, even more of an extrovert than me. And so she started talking up everyone in the masjid and learning about them. And so she said to me, you know, there's a man who comes here who it is said about him that he has an answered du'a. Mm. So if we find him, ask him to make du'a for your girls. So at the time, both of my girls were taking national examinations. My eldest was doing a baccalaureate and my second was doing a brevet, the ninth grade exam. So these are important exams, national examinations in Syria. The ninth grade one decides whether you can go to high school or not. It was high stress in the house, you know. And so one day after this very beautiful morning, as usual, you know, uh, we were there, our my, our sons visited the sheikh. we prayed duha there, we were there for long enough that we were also able to pray duha and then leave. We usually left and fed the birds and then we Aww. would drive away. So on this day, as we walk out of the masjid, my friend says, there he is, that's the man that hasn't an answered du'a. Let's go ask him. So we walked up to him and I opened my mouth to tell him to make dua for my daughters. And he took one look at me and he said, may God send you a good man. (laughs) And I said, too late for that. (laughs) (laughs) And just footnote, my husband is a good man. Okay. But that's just what I said. I was was all discombobulated. (laughs) That's not the dua I wanted. And then I said, no, no, no. I want you to make dua for my daughters. So he did. Now, but that's not the end of the story. The hilarious part of the story is, okay, alhamdulillah, I met the the du'a person. I went back to my car, put my son in the back seat, was fussing around a little bit with my keys. You know how sometimes you get in the car and you can't quite find your keys right away.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And this was in the days before you just pushed a button to start your car. And finally, I found my keys, put them in the keyhole, and I saw from the corner of my eye two women walking towards me very quickly. And they were older, so they were kind of, you know, as older women will run sometimes, semi-jogging towards me. <laughs> and they were gesturing with their hands, wait, wait. To be honest with you, I thought maybe they wanted charity, because early in the morning, very often, that is who you met outside the mystery. So I paused for a minute to see what they wanted, and they came up to me, and guess what they wanted? They wanted to know if I would marry their son, (laughs) son and brother. So it was a a mom and a daughter, and they were trying to find a wife for her son. Didn't they see your son at the back? No, they didn't see him, but it's so funny. It was the answer of that sheikh right away, an immediate immediate response. I was like, I'm so so sorry. (laughs) I said, I'm so sorry. Did you show your ring? Well, no, you see, I don't usually wear a ring. I, oh. I, it's a Western, I find it a Western uh, symbol. And I my fingers don't do well with rings. So that's another reason. And I've tried to get in the habit of wearing rings. But every time I try, I fall out of the habit again. But so I don't usually have a ring on. So yes, that's probably part of it. But they are far away from me anyway. Mm. And I said to them, I said, I know for sure that your son or brother is a good man. <laughs> because I was <laughs> thinking about that talk. But I'm so sorry, I'm already married. <laughs>
0: MashaAllah. Oh my God. How immediate that dua was answered. Yeah,
1: it was something else. And that's the thing. That these are the kinds of people that lived in Damascus. These people that had immediate answered dua, people of God, people of worship, people of ilm. And I was really blessed to meet so many of them. That's one story that came to my mind. If I can think of another one that is Imam Nawawi, is mm-hmm. from Syria. The reason his name is Noah is because he's a he's from a village called Noah. Mm. And so a number of times I was able to go to that village and visit his gravesite where he's buried, his maqam. And he had put in his will that he didn't want a stone erected above him. And so there wasn't, but subhanAllah, a tree has grown above his maqam, above his I grave. Sure that is enormous and beautiful. And so then they built around the tree like a little, I don't know, a hut or house or something, a little. Mm -mm. And so you go into that space to give him salam and make du'a for him or, you know. So yeah, that's another beautiful thing. Syria is a beautiful country and I miss it. Alhamdulillah.
0: May you get to return to Syria, Inshallah. May Allah keep the land safe and blessed, and Ameen. May Allah reward all the people in Syria, Inshallah, for what they are going through. Amin.
1: I thought of another story, if you will yes. have another. This one is really a special one, and I think your listeners should hear it. There is a tradition of learning Hadith. When you want to be a true scholar of Hadith, you memorize. The Matan and the Sanad, the text and the chain mm-hmm. of the hadith of the seven great books. Bukhari, Muslim, Dawood, Tirmidhi, Ahmed, Ibn Hanbal, Ibn Majah, Nisa'i. Okay? Now, in the early 20th century, there was a great man named Badr al-Din al-Hasani, who was known as Sheikh al-Hadith al-Akbar, the great scholar of hadith because he had memorized all of those books he was well known for that and of course you and i know and your listeners know when i say the book of bukhari it's m- multiple volumes as all of them are yeah one day i was invited to a party i arrived and we were the audience was sat in chairs the chairs were set up so that there was an aisle in between us and behind us were french doors okay mm-hmm. i asked the person next to me do you know why we're here She said, I I don't know. She said, I'm not sure. The lights went out and a spotlight shone on the French doors. And the doors opened and in walked 35 women holding above their heads a certificate for the memorization of all seven Seven of those books of Hadith. 35 women. 35 and we were celebrating that incredible accomplishment. And they also then opened a mahad for a, a, an institute for the study of hadith first, Mashallah. and then, of course, Islamic sciences as well. But I, I tell that story because the one human being, Sheikh Badr al-Hassani, who was known for this, then in walked the 35 women. And it's the time for women to come back to knowledge. It's the time for women to cling to and to take on the incredible beauty of this religion, it's time mm. that we read it, we interpret it, we live it, and we are a rising tide of community change and knowledge Gosh, oh. and terbiya Because our our community needs us, and we need us. Yes, so true. So that was that was a beautiful story as well. That was a really incredible experience. My heart is so full. Okay, so
0: your work focuses a lot on empowering women right this is a field that i'm very very passionate about i grew up with three other sisters so there's four girls i've never had a brother the only man i know is my husband (laughs) so it's like women and their concerns and their aim and their goals are very very dear to my heart and i wanted to ask you okay one this is a sidetrack question but you know when you said when you were 17 and you said like you didn't agree that you were worshiping a man do you think there was like a feminist
1: thing or it was just like... Oh, for sure. It was absolutely a feminist thing. Muslims are afraid of the word feminism, but there are many, many different types of feminism. And we don't need to talk about that. But definitely at 17, it was a feminist thing. But it's an Islamic thing. God doesn't mm-hmm. have a gender. That's true. Yeah. So at 17, I was like, why would I worship a man? I mean... At that point, my opinion was that men are very imperfect, as are women. Yeah, that was a sidetrack question, but I kind of feel exactly what you feel because I grew up
0: with a mother who, mashallah, she is very independent. She always tell me, like, whatever goals that you want to pursue, you can do it. I believe in whatever you want to do. Like, there's no such thing as, you know, only men can do certain things and women can't. And my dad, mashallah, bless him, he has four daughters. So he is also always championing us and saying like, you know, you whatever you put your heart to, you can do it. So I grew up with that mindset. But unfortunately, like, especially with like the current generation right now, we're distracted from going after honorable goals. Ooh. The things that we are occupied on currently is very sad And I wanted to ask you, like, do you have advice for young women like us, like in our 20s and in our 30s, who are currently juggling like family and work, but at the same time, we don't want to lose our spiritual purpose?
1: Yes. First of all, yay your parents for championing you all. That's such a blessing. And may Allah reward them for their good work with you and all the good work that you and your sisters do. You know, I really think that if I'm thinking about late 20s, early 30s, and what is this young woman doing in her life right now? Late 20s, early 30s, if she's married, she probably has very young children. Maybe she started work in her mid-20s, so she's working as well. It's very, very busy time. Often very overwhelming and very easy to be swept up in the daily cycle of I'm busy I'm busy I'm busy so my advice would be threefold one is just take a minute and make an intention make an intention ask yourself I am 30 years old let's say for me I'm 54 so where do you want to be when you're 54 I know that seems like a long time away but you're going to blink and it's going to be there and the thing about moms especially is that if you have young children between, let's say, 25 and 45, okay, that's when they're growing from, maybe maybe you had a child at 25. By the time you're 45, that child is 20 years old. Yep. At 20 years old, that child is going to now start acting like an adult, we hope. Certainly, they're not going to be as demanding of you for time as they were 10 years ago. The scary thing is, What will you do at 45? Why do I say that's scary? Because you, not you, Aida, but the imaginary woman who at 25, between 25 and 45, if those years were spent forgetting all that you learned, not working on yourself at all, not contributing to society at all, not doing anything but mothering, and this is not a belittlement of mothering. Mothering is important and you are doing this, but that's all you do at 45 when your children start to pull away it's going to be very painful, and mm. it may be very difficult to bring yourself back into the community of work, the community of even volunteer work. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's intention. What do I hope to be able to say about my life when I'm 54 or when I'm 60, when I'm 50? Whatever is easy to think about. Is it easier to think about when I'm 35, when I'm 45? What do I want to say mm. about myself every 10 years? And then make that intention and, of course, connect that intention to Allah. Second, make sure that during the 20 years of your life, and this I learned from my teacher, make sure in those 20 years of mothering that you take two hours a week. That's not a lot. Mm -hmm. Take two hours a week. One hour for learning. Maybe you're taking an online class. Maybe you're going to a local class. One hour for learning about your religion is what I mean here. And one hour for giving back to community. And that can be anything. Maybe you're babysitting your friends' kids so they can do their learning. Maybe mm-hmm. you're teaching others how to knit. Maybe you have maybe you're really good at Quran so you're teaching someone else how to recite Quran. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, hold on to the ability to take and give. So that when you hit that period in your life as a mother which you will or you just have more time on your hands, especially for stay-at-home moms, you will be able to quickly continue that process of learning and giving and just be, you'll be right in the groove. You won't have to take time. You'll just be right there and be able to do that. So that's number two. So the first is intention. The second is the two hours. And the third thing I would say is that it's very easy to put ourselves aside for the people around us. And I, I'm not criticizing that. I think there's too much of the world that criticizes that there's something really beautiful in service There's something really beautiful and caring so much for people around us, but we have to have our boundaries. Hmm. And the most important boundary is the boundary of ibadah, worship. Don't miss your fuddled prayers. Don't miss your obligatory prayers because you're taking care of a child or children or anything, actually, or a job. Don't set aside your obligatory prayers for anything. Know that your obligatory prayers are as important to your spirit as breathing is to your body. And none of us would be willing to stop breathing for a while. Why are we all afraid of this pandemic? I mean, I don't mean, that almost sounds like I'm mocking or being silly. I'm not. Our, our lungs are critical to our life. And it's scary to have any issue with your lungs. In the same way, our fuddled prayers are critical to our life. And we have to really hold on to them with the same type of protection that we hold on to our health. Those are my three pieces of advice. And I really believe if you hold on to those three, that you're going to make it up into your 45, 50, really happy and really ready to enjoy the next life stage because it is a different life stage and it should be enjoyed. And you don't want to reach to that space with regrets. You want to reach mm. to that space ready to take on mature womanhood, which is different than young womanhood.
0: So I'm quite excited for that. And I love your tips. They're all quite Practical to do, especially the two hour one when you put it into context. Like, yeah, I have two hours that I can spare, and that should be a priority because you are feeding your soul and you're also giving back to the community, right?
1: Exactly. Inshallah.
0: Super, super wise advice. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much, Anse, for that. Okay, I want to take a break from like asking you serious questions. We're gonna play a game. Okay. It's called Favorites. Okay. So Anything that first comes to your mind.
1: Okay, that's going to be hard because favorite. So whatever I answer about the favorites will be today. Okay, I might change my mind next week. (laughs)
0: Okay, what is your favorite Arabic word today? My favorite Arabic word?
1: Rabata. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Okay, is there a reason why? Uh, Yes, actually, Rabata means to bring together. And it is a root word of many important, beautiful words, including ribat, rabita, rabita. Uh, rabata, so many, irbat, rab, there, there's so many in, really important, beautiful words that come from Rabata, which is actually why we chose that name. Inshallah. All of these other terms talk about connection to people, connection to each other, connection to God, connection to one another to change and take care of society. In Morocco, they used to have ribats, since you live in Morocco, that were places that women could go. For mm. rest and care, and um, almost like safe houses of today, Mashallah. yeah. So it's a really, it's a beautiful word. Someone told me today that in Iraq there was a rabata that was something or a person, maybe I didn't don't remember exactly that used to look for the mistake of society or the the problems of society in order to fix them. So it really has incredible, incredible branches from this root word. It's all encompassing. Yeah, it's all encompassing of all the work that I want to do in my life.
0: Nice. What is your favorite book that
1: you've read today? You know, a book I read recently that I really enjoyed was Heart's Turn. I love it. Yeah, it's really it's nice. It's really,
0: really good. Yeah, yeah. it's really touching,
1: well-written. I really like how it talks about repentance and the growing into faith. It's beautifully written, beautifully done. MashaAllah. Love it, Mashallah. Okay, what is your favorite travel destination besides
0: Mecca, Medina, Syria?
1: Oh, the, you know, well, something funny about me is anywhere I go, the second I get there, I'm just saying oh, I want to live here. I could live here. I love this place. It's really, people laugh at me now because I, everywhere I go, I say the same thing. However, la- a year ago, I went to Konya. Konya, I said something different. I said I could retire here. It's a very spiritual place, Konya. It's there here, right? It's in Turkey. It's where Rumi, Molana Rumi yeah. is buried. It's a very spiritual place. It's also a Sort of quiet, but yet because it is a tourist place for people who are on a spiritual tourism, it does have many people from other countries. It's a little bit more diverse than other places Mm. and great, fantastic food. I mean, there's great food in Malaysia too, I must say. I have to say that because I really, really love Malaysian food. (laughs) And I also love Malaysia, but I don't love the weather in Malaysia. So sorry, Mm. Malaysian.
0: Subhanallah. Okay. I have two other favorite questions. Second last one
1: is what is your favorite
0: subject to teach? Today.
1: I really love teaching seerah, but I think the one that I'm going to say that really, really is my favorite to teach is aqidah. And the reason for that is I consider Aqidah both a science of old and a science of new. That we have mm. to think about what does the Quran say? What do the scholars say? What does the hadith say about how we should understand Allah Tawheed, for example. But at the same time, we have to know and understand what are the challenges of today that may be messing with our mind or messing with our aqidah. It's not enough just to study the old books, in my opinion. We also need to understand that there's something out there called white savior syndrome. And how is that affecting our understanding of Allah is the most powerful, for example. Mm -mm -mm. I really enjoy thinking about aqidah, talking about it and teaching it and preparing those lessons. I really enjoy that. And I am also a philosophy lover. And of course, a part of aqeed is ilm al-kalam, which does have some philosophical methodologies in there and things like that and ways of thinking. So I think that's probably why. MashaAllah. I'm
0: attending your aqeedah class and have attended your seerah class. I can definitely say that I enjoy both classes. And I love like how you said that you actually, this is something that I find a little bit missing in some of the aqeedah classes. As a student, I'm struggling to apply it. I've learned this thing, how do I apply what I've learned today? But mm-hmm. like you said, like you've bridged the gap and that's why I love taking your classes because it makes sense. Thank you. you. Know? So Alhamdulillah, mashallah. Yes guys, please try to sign up for Ribad classes. I'm mm-hmm. a student and inshallah we'll stay for a long, long time. Inshallah. Inshallah I mean. Okay, so and my last favorite question is what is your favorite part of your morning routine? Well, first of all,
1: I am a routine addict. I really, I have, me too. I, I love, routine. love routine. I can eat the same thing every day for six months. <laughs> I love routine. So, my favorite part of my morning routine is I think there's a um, sort of a cozy time in between. I finished, you know, the night prayers and praying fezur, and I'm getting ready to sit down and do my my of my post-fasher routine. And there's kind of a cozy time in between there where I usually pour myself a cup of coffee. I might check my WhatsApp. I'm setting my timer. I'm getting sort of getting ready. And that, I like that period of time, that in between, you know, where it's, it's so familiar. When I was younger, I was sitting on the floor, but now I'm sitting in a chair and <laughs> drinking most of the coffee. Usually I drink most of the coffee at that point or else, you know, having it there. Yeah, I really like that period of transition between... The prayers that can say and the adgar and things like that. Yeah, It's so vivid.
0: It's like I'm there with you when you're describing that moment. And I think I understand what you mean. There's that familiarity, a certain comfort that settles in your heart. Yes. Okay, I said it's my last, but sorry, I have to ask you another one. You wear many hats, okay? You are a founder, you're an executive director and chief spirituality officer. You're a writer, you're a translator, you are a speaker, you are in advisory bots you are a teacher you're a mother you're a grandmother out of all the roles that you play what is your favorite
1: today my favorite role is the role of student Inshallah. emotionally my favorite role is probably being a grandmother there's a very emotional attachment there and of course um, hi, kids! If you're listening to this, I love being a mother. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer: <laughs> just putting that in. <laughs> but I do think my favorite role as a human being is as student. That is that gives me the most hope for myself, and the most fulfilling moments of my life have been. I mean, in this, not necessarily only a student of علم, of knowledge, but also a student of Serbia and so a student of upbringing and guidance. Even the days that were hard, even when I was being told, you know, you need to shape up, kind of stuff. That is still my favorite role. And I'm very grateful for those opportunities in my life and hope that there will be more. I mean, okay, the
0: busybody in me is going to ask you, what are you studying currently?
1: I am actually in a class right now that is is my last class to complete a certificate of fundraising management. So when I'm done with this, I will be a certified fundraising manager. Yeah, I I bet that's not what you expected to hear me say. (laughs) But that's so interesting.
0: MashaAllah, at 54, I can't believe it.
1: Well, I run a nonprofit, and I believe it, that our nonprofit should be cutting edge, and we should know what our best practices out there. And I'm really blessed because the Muslim Philanthropy Association, in association with the University of Indiana and the Lilly Philanthropy Association, I think it's called, they have come together to offer these courses at a reduced rate. So, hi, Muslims. Look for those and take these classes, become educated in fundraising, so that you can do it in dignified, beautiful mm. ways that support your causes, and also uh, do that in a way that can build a legacy. Inshallah. You were probably asking Islamically. I am. I actually was thinking maybe gardening. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> not gardening. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever study gardening. It takes too much time. <laughs> uh. I just go next door. My mother lives next door. I go next door and she grows tomatoes and cucumbers on her balcony. So I go next door, put my mask on and say, I'm coming to get some tomatoes, mom. MashaAllah. <laughs> Beautiful. I was actually asking mrs
0: Zalima for this year. And Mrs. Alima is like, she's like my matchmaker with Rebat. Oh. She's
1: like,
0: yeah. Nice. So. I like it. <laughs> I was telling her like, you know, one thing that I really love about Anse Tamara is that you kept your name when you convert it. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just love that for some reason.
1: Well, I'm very passionate about this. There's a brand new book coming out. Please look for it. It should be out in about, inshallah, let's say four to five weeks. Inshallah, Uh, it's soon. Yes, it's called Project Lina, Bringing Your Whole Self to Islam. And it's directed at converts, especially convert Mm women. Uh, If you work with converts as well, you know, you'll benefit from it. But in this A whole section of this book is dedicated to the idea of names. I'm very passionate about this idea. And it's an important topic because the Prophet ﷺ does address the issue of names. And changing a name can have a negative effect on Mm. the growth of a convert. It can also have a positive effect. It really depends. But it's something that should be taken seriously. And I'm very passionate that we don't ever— fall under or into, I should say, a situation where someone comes and tells us, oh, your name is Fatima now. Yeah. That happens a lot to a lot of converts, or it used to happen to them even more than now. That just removes all the agency from that convert, who just had enough agency to change her whole religion. Mm. She also is that allowed is the true. agency to make decisions about her name that makes sense for her. Mm. So that's so true so in four weeks that will mean
0: like when the episode comes out
1: oh wow so it'll be very soon yeah yeah
0: mashallah. so look
1: for it at Daybreak Press on robota.org forward slash Daybreak Press you'll see the Project Lena book brand new book so exciting is there reason why it's called Lena? yes Lena is a nakhla it's a palm tree oh and palm trees are a very unique tree because they have very 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 deep roots they have tap roots not regular roots like other trees And those roots go deeply into the ground looking for water. And converts, one of the things that we really need is to grow roots. And we need to grow them quickly. And we need to grow them deeply because we don't have the resources and family that help us that born Muslims will have. The other thing that palm trees have that is unique is that when there is a hurricane or a, a terrible storm, they usually bend. They don't break. And again, with converts, we have challenges in our lives that are sometimes quite challenging. Of course, everyone does, but there are certain challenges that are unique to converts. And it's important that we're able to just bend with this the storms of life and then straighten back up again. And the final thing about these same palm trees that have all of these beautiful qualities is that they also give nutritious fruit. Whether it's a date or a coconut, this is very nutritious fruit, And we hope that our all converts will be able to grow deep roots, be very flexible with life's challenges, and give fruit and nutrition to all of the people, communities, and relationships, people around them that they come into contact with. I
0: mean, you know, Ansi, one thing that I learned just through from like following your works and even more during this conversation is I feel like everything that you do, mashallah, always have ihsan. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. No, because like I feel like this is what as Muslims we should do. Um I just read and I actually cried when I read it Surah Ar-Rahman, the Surah that I read and listen like constantly. There was this one line in Surah Ar-Rahman that says, please correct me if I'm wrong, like if you give ihsan, the result is ihsan. If you do anything with ihsan, the result is always ihsan. And this is something that I see um, in everything that you do, like just how you thought about the name Rabata, how you thought about the name Lina. You said that, you know, you're taking a class on fundraising, like you want your non-profit to be cutting edge. Everything we do as a Muslim, it has to come from a place of
1: ihsan. It shouldn't be sloppy. It shouldn't be yes, sloppy. Yes, exactly. I mean, I appreciate the comment, because it's it's definitely something I strive for and believe in. I believe that we, as Muslims, are called to Ihsan. I believe we are called to this. We are to take on the mantle of Islam, fill our hearts and minds with Iman, and live our lives in Ihsan. I mean, I mean and I think that uh, the more we do this, the more we will fulfill the mandate To enjoin all that is good and push back against all that is ugly, which is what we've been called to do.
0: MashaAllah. Okay, Ansi, as a parting word, do you have any advice on anything?
1: I think my advice to people today, managing the world as it is today, let's define that. Because the world that is today is a worldwide, in many places we're dealing with the pandemic, Mm COVID-19 In the West, we have a lot of issues, especially in the United States, of systemic racism across the world. Muslims are dealing with Islamophobia. We have really strange hate happening in the world that is growing in different parts of the world that, for me, someone from my generation is really surprised by this. And I think for many people, to look at the world, it becomes very overwhelming, maybe depressing maybe anxiety-inducing. Hopelessness. Yes, exactly. Issues of economic issues, all sorts of things that also are affecting people today. And my advice is don't allow shaitan, don't allow the world to put you in a state of negativity. Do anything you can to be positive. Get curious about whatever is happening to you right now. Get curious. What am I supposed to learn here? Be curious instead of angry. Mm -hmm. Find a way to find what it is you're supposed to learn. Think about what is positive here. What joy can you bring to this situation? How can you be the joy jat? How can you be the joyful moment for someone else? What can you do to bring joy into this world? just living like that every single day will not only make a difference for the individual who makes that intention and does start to live like that but it will make a difference for so many other people mm. and in that making that difference it becomes that ripple effect and that becomes that rising tide of positivity, that rising tide of community care, that rising tide of tarbiyah, eventually that rising tide of ilm and leadership that we need for today and for tomorrow and the tomorrow, all of the tomorrows that are to come. MashaAllah. I love that. Don't get angry,
0: get curious. That should be on a t-shirt, Anse.
1: Okay. You should copyright that. (laughs) I'll talk
0: to the merchandise department at Rabata. (laughs) (laughs) MashaAllah. Thank you so much. This has been a really beautiful conversation. I've learned so much as always being in your company. And I pray that, you know, may Allah continue to pour risky and success and abundance and ease and strength to you and your team and your family. And may Allah continue to let us have the likes of you, inshallah, Aww. so that we can have someone to hold on to it, to try to like navigate this crazy, but really beautiful life that we're trying to live, inshallah.
1: Thank you very much. I mean, thank you. I mean,
0: I mean. All right, ladies, thank you so much for listening to the conversation. Uh, please make dua for Anse Tamara and her entire team. And please, 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 do yourself a favor and sign up to any of Ribat classes. I've taken so many and loved every single one of them. All the ANSAs are really, 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 not just knowledgeable, but they are super passionate about what they teach. So you'll definitely like learn a lot from them, inshallah. And yeah, all good is from Allah and all mistakes are mine alone. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. <coughs> Thank you so much for listening in to the episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and have taken away a new idea, have gotten a new perspective or some gems of wisdom, inshallah. If you'd like to hear more from me, I also write my Tuesday love letters and I'd love for you to join us. To subscribe for free, Just head on over to AidaAzlin.com, enter your email address, and that's it. The following Tuesday, inshallah, you'll receive a love letter sent straight to your inbox. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode, inshallah. Till then, please do take care. Bye!